Hi, and welcome to the theory and evidence section of the um, uh, reflection cycle. Now, uh, within most professional development programs, what happens is that um, a, a particular perspective, a particular theory is advocated um, and presented to you. Um, now, we're going to take things slightly differently here within, um, within the reflection cycle. Um, so it's going to be a little bit different from what you may have previously experienced in terms of professional development. Um, we don't take a singular notion of what best practice looks like, um, nor uh, is the use of our kind of video tools about measuring the extent to which you manage to transfer best practice into your classroom. Um, we think that learners, teachers and schools are bit too complex really for that kind of one-size-fits-all approach and actually the evidence base itself is very broad and quite divergent so it's hard to sit here and say confidently um, that one simplistic interpretation um, is going to capture the whole picture so rather the way we look at it is that what we want to do is support you uh, to broaden your knowledge base and to better equip you um, to uh, interpret and apply the evidence as an adaptive professional in the changing context um, of your classroom. There's actually pretty strong evidence to show that this adaptivity um, and sort of developing this sort of efficacy as a teacher is actually more predictive in terms of educational outcomes than sort of um, mechanically implementing uh, a single, uh, single educational strategy. So none of this is to say that um, after we've looked at all the different perspectives, it would be wrong uh, for you to seek to further your teaching by pursuing one model or another, uh, far from it. Uh, the important thing is that that's done with a solid grounding in evidence um, and with a mindfulness um, of the alternative perspectives and approaches. So obviously there's a, a multitude of different educational perspectives opinions um, different sort of theoretical constructs that sit behind what we could and should be doing in classrooms as teachers in the uk right now and actually across the world there is one specific kind of polarizing debate which basically captures the essence of a, a lot of the others um, and that's the one which pitches a sort of traditionalist or trad teachers um, and researchers on one hand versus a sort of more progressive or prog teachers on the other. Now, if you were to sort of engage on edu Twitter, um, you'd be forgiven for thinking um, that this this is an emergent phenomenon, very, very recent uh, and very, very hot as a topic. And actually, the reality is that um, the debate's been raging uh, behind the scenes for, for decades, potentially centuries, if you look at it from certain perspectives. Um, and it's really been brought to the fore more recently um, by some emergent evidence in the world of neuroscience, um, the practice of these sort of meta-analyses that pull together lots of different research papers and start giving us a real sense of uh, the broader picture about what works um, in classrooms. And of course, it's all been given a forum um, by uh, the emergence of social media uh, and, as I mentioned, things like um, Edgy Twitter, which is connecting educational ideas and perspectives uh, in ways that are potentially more polarizing but certainly broader than they've ever been before so when we look at this sort of um, progressive versus sort of traditionalist uh, model um, it's clear that those camps are based on firstly yes different philosophies but also different evidence bases um, sometimes this leads to them advocating 
very different educational methods and on other other occasions actually there's a remarkable convergence between them and so that's one of the areas that we're going to explore um, in this module so this sort of uh, dichotomous disagreement based discourse um, has both challenges and opportunities for teachers and the education community as a whole um, this is the landscape uh, where we'll have to navigate in order to develop an evidence-informed approach. Therefore, it would be inappropriate for us um, as teachers and obviously for us as ed, um, professional development uh, providers to shy away from uh, that debate or to prescribe one approach over the other, as I've already mentioned. Rather, let's put the different ideas on the table. Okay. So again, we're trying to uh, look at this big debate and we'll look at the kind of poles of that debate this is a tough process because the world of educational research and theory is full of uh, competing and complementary ideas some of which exist within the same uh, overall conceptual framework so you've got a lot of complexity to deal with in addition to that there's a few health warnings associated with the process firstly you probably know most of this stuff already um, I don't want to teach my grandmother to suck eggs but equally I think it's important to get the big picture big strokes out uh, before we start looking at um, some of our own practices um, number two um, what I'm saying is necessarily a pretty pretty radical simplification um, so uh, that's going to leave out some details and that will probably annoy some folk and then a third one is that um, very teach very few teachers very few researchers actually advocate for a purist implementation of either of the ideas we're going to be talking about so uh, it's Im important to remember that most teaching sits up as a blend somewhere on the spectrum but that said let's let's get into it uh, I think probably the most important thing um, when we're looking at this sort of traditionalist versus progressivist um, debate about teaching is that really you can frame it quite crudely around um, the notions of instructivism versus constructivism so in the is the role of teaching to facilitate uh, knowledge transfer through instruction or is it to support learners to create their own knowledge and meaning through facilitation so for instructivists the role of the teacher is pretty central uh, in terms of planning and delivery of learning instructivists regard uh, learning as a process of effectively transferring a known and structured body of knowledge um, into the long-term memory of learners they do this through clear instruction scaffolded practice and teacher feedback modern instructivism blends more traditional methods with some that have um, emerged from the world of uh, cognitive science and neuroscience so um, they argue predominantly about working memory and they point to the fact that um, there are some pretty severe limitations in learners working memory that must be overcome uh, with a number of strategies one meticulously planned lessons as i've already mentioned clear linkage to prior learning um, and then introducing information in small and interleaved steps so when i say interleaved i mean such that you're not blocking a whole period of time where you're transferring information about a particular subject or a particular topic it's good to interleave and intersperse uh, that that process that's backed up by regular review high frequency questioning and practice which seeks to support the development of um, well-organized schemas uh, interconnected uh, schemas of knowledge in the learner's mind so a really crucial thing 
when we're talking about instructivism is that they believe that only once that foundational domain knowledge um, has been achieved can you start to remove those scaffolds uh, gradually to enable uh, learners to engage with more complex um, problems independently. They argue that if you do that prematurely, you risk um, overloading uh, the working memory um, of learners. Basically, a schema takes up less space in the working memory, uh, which means that once it's there and you bring it forward into the working memory, then you've still got capacity to be able to go away and solve a problem. Um, and actually, that counterproductivity um, of introducing problems too soon is one of their key criticisms of the other side of this debate, namely constructivism. So for constructivists, um, it's broadly an umbrella term um, for theories which emphasize the role of self-discovery and peer collaboration for learners. So fundamentally, construct constructivists believe that learners construct their own knowledge um, through experience. Um, within um, a constructivist setting, um, the teacher's role is that of planner and guide. Um, so to achieve that one, one flattens out um, classroom hierarchies pretty extensively. Um, and obviously at the same time, there's a process of sort of de-emphasizing the importance of instructive phases um, within the lessons. So overall, for constructivists, really the goal is to foster um, reflective, critical and collaborative skills through the act of learning. And they argue that learners are better placed then to transfer those skills into solving new and novel problems um, as they you know so you, you, you've got a new problem you apply what you've learned before and also the skills you've developed before in solving problems um, and you would probably see these sort of methodologies come to the fore um, predominantly in the in the modern educational world through problem-based learning programs so that's sort of one flavor and another flavor um, is where these sort of constructivist ideas or perhaps more accurately co-constructivist ideas find root within the field of dialogic pedagogy but they do this in a very different way so proponents of dialogic pedagogy also to some degree reject the notion that direct instruction forms the basis of knowledge development and development of these schema rather they point to the really close relationship between language developmental relationships and thought. Some go so far as to think that you, you can't really think without having developed the appropriate academic language to surround the concept. And so therefore, the development of those um, the, 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 the language is crucial to, to lead the development of thought. So in a dialogic space, um, the flattening of the hierarchy still happens and the introduction of authentic problems still happen. But really what they are is a vehicle to foster um, uh, rich academic discourse and, one, and a discourse, most importantly, that kind of restores the primacy of the teacher in that process. Um, so within a dialogic space, 
um, you still have these instructional phases, but they're interspersed with more dialogic ones where big, big questions and big ideas are put on the table for open and reciprocal debate. So again, for people from a, from a dialogic context, transferability is still pretty crucial. The argument is that through the development of the language, but also the skills of uh, collaboration, listening to others, formulating your own arguments, etc., that um, critical, reflective and collaborative skills are developed and they can in the future be applied to novel and interesting problems. So there you have it. Um, broadly, health warnings are important, but the notion that instructivism uh, is uh, about using meticulous mechanisms to support the development of schema that then allow you to go on and solve problems. Then there's a sort of problem-based uh, model under constructivism, which sees putting big problems on the table as being uh, the primary way that learners construct their own meaning and construct their own knowledge. And then a more nuanced uh, space where we might still use some of those mechanisms of flattening of hierarchies uh, and of putting big ideas or big problems on the table, but the central focus of that is to develop in quite a Socratic way uh, high-level uh, academic conversations between uh, teachers and learners. So let's get on with the next step. Okay, so it would be wrong to proceed without at least a cursory uh, review of the evidence uh, relating to these two concepts. Obviously, um, a comprehensive kind of book review or evidence review um, is a bit beyond the scope um, of this section. However, we shouldn't proceed in a complete vacuum um, of evidence. Um, the current evidence base, frankly, has a pretty consistent message about the importance of the instructive components, but there's a little bit more nuance to that that we need to discuss as well. So there's very good evidence that instructivist methods are extremely effective in terms of knowledge transfer um, and the development of operative skills. In short, they're a very good way of being successful in examinations for the majority of students. Now, there's obviously always critique leveled and saying that, hang on, wait a minute, it's not measuring the right things, or but what are the long-term implications? Um, there's also pretty good evidence to show that learners exposed to more instructivist models stay in education longer and are also more likely to go on to further, um, further education, etc., further and higher. So we definitely have to take notice of the instructivist um, thinking. There's also been a number of studies though for problem-based learning showing positive impacts, but these primarily tend to emerge from the world of medical education. Um, and instructivists would say that actually that's a pretty good example of what they call the expertise reversal effect, i.e. those particular learners already have uh, strong domain knowledge. Um, and if, if we look in the world of uh, primary and secondary education, um, the, the picture isn't quite so rosy. There are uh, a number of studies which have been plagued by kind of high dropout rates, implying that schools who are trying to implement 
problem-based approaches or purist problem-based approaches have actually struggled uh, to adapt and, and implement. And actually, in terms of um, those places where they have implemented with fidelity, there are actually quite a limited number of um, well-sourced, well-developed research um, uh, evaluations demonstrating impact. There are a couple and um, I will link to those uh, in uh, below this section. Primarily the area where they showed some success was not so much in terms of learning within a specific domain or a particular topic, although they competed equally in those spaces. These research projects showed that a primary area of success for the problem-based approach was transfer, i.e. that those particular students in the trial were also able to transfer their skills into uh, new and novel problems more effectively. So in addition to that, um, if we're going to look at sort of social constructivism, i.e. sort of dialogic uh, pedagogy, um, the evidence there is actually far stronger. Uh, recent work by the EEF has demonstrated a considerable effect size um, with a fairly high level of confidence, i.e. two months of additional progress in a year associated with the implementation of a dialogic approach in UK classrooms. And in fact, this effect size is mirrored by a number of other studies around the world. So it's fair to say that dialogic approaches, which do sit underneath the constructivist umbrella, are uh, being uh, demonstrated to be effective. So there's an emergent theme within the evidence base. It certainly shows that well-structured instruction should be part of the educational mix and that there is just insufficient replicable evidence for removing instructive components from teaching and learning. But equally, does that mean that uh, constructivism should be ab abandoned entirely? Some advocate for that, uh, while others point to a far more nuanced position, um, especially given the strong emergent evidence from uh, the dialogic domain. So, as was previously mentioned, very few practitioners or researchers actually advocate for a purist implementation of either a constructivist or an instructivist approach. The reality is that most practice sits somewhere on a continuum between the poles, i.e. selective use of authentic problems within a broader educational mix. So below this video is one by Dr. Julia Aitken, uh, in which she outlines this much more nuanced position uh, from a constructivist viewpoint and it's well worth a watch. One of the things that's come forward as we look into the TEFL framework and starting to get into learning design is sometimes sort of some angst I see in teachers about what you mean that I have to do explicit instruction where I may want to do something much more open-ended or the other thing I find is sometimes people will be saying um, oh, you mean I can't do explicit instruction? And I think what happens in the Western world, we get really caught in an either-or phenomenon that's either explicit instruction or it's open-ended inquiry, discovery, learning. Now, I've heard, for example, some people say things like constructivism is a load of rubbish. Well, we have to be more thoughtful than that. Let's have a look at when, what we really mean by constructivism and instructivism and how they might actually work together for the way we teach. So rather than thinking of it as this either or, either it's the um, sage on the stage 
or the guide by the side, how do we actually reconceptualise or reframe it so we see constructivism as actually being going way beyond either or and that true constructivist pedagogy can include and does include instruction? So let's try and reframe it a bit. So if you think about um, maybe my big aim is to head kids towards um, being able to direct their own learning, to be able to deal with complex problem solve, solving, to be able to deal with open-ended questions and problems, etc. But for some kids, that may be too big a leap to jump straight there. So what I might need to do is being very careful in giving them a foundation that comes through a very teacher-directed activity, to give them a foundation from which or a platform from which they can then move off and head towards it. Some will be right at that point and they won't need anything extra directly from me. Others may struggle a bit along the way. So then how do I then move in and perhaps do some modelling or scaffolding to help their thinking or the process? And, and even when kids have done that, how am I continually giving them formative feedback where I may just be sort of nudging them and prompting them to refine thinking or to challenge their thinking? Um, so for me, it's not, again, it's not the either or. They're a very nested set of strategies that move up and down the, the spectrum from direct instruction right the way through to open-ended um, guide-by-the-side type of action on my part. If we really understand the essence of constructivism, we can get away from the pendulum swings from either it's explicit instruction or it's open-ended inquiry. We've actually got to start to think about it more deeply. So for me, I really uh, consider that you can't actually develop meaning yourself through instruction. You've actually got to create that meaning yourself. You've, got to, you've, you've actually got to construct your own meaning. That's what the essence of constructivism is. But that doesn't mean you have to be left alone to do it. Our role as the educator is to be skillful in using strategies that help people towards that understanding through the way that we move up and down that repertoire. And so what's going to help me do that? What's going to direct my approach? Well, that's for me where I really need to know my learners. I need to know that for this person in maths, for example, in my maths class, that it would have been a tough call to throw them an open-ended problem. They wouldn't have had the confidence. So how am I scaffolding their learning to give them the confidence they can have a go? And how do I stand by to nudge at critical points to keep helping them along towards gaining their success? So in addition to knowing the learners, those who love a big challenge and don't want me involved in, in nudging them and prompting them, but it'll come to me in their own terms. In addition to that, there's also being really clear about what it is that I'm wanting them to learn and um, is the, what's happening heading towards that sort of learning. Um, you know, the exact um, sort of the quality of the learning, I guess, and how am I prompting that? So that's another thing I've got to think about. And um, constantly, obviously, being responsive to what's happening in front of me. But see, the question for me, though, is largely, I don't think I can actually work as a, in a constructivist way without involving the kids. Because if I don't ask them what they're struggling with or where they need help, how am I going to know? I'm just second guessing as to whether they're making the meaning. So, you know, how am I helping them help me in being responsive and nudging where I need to or direct instruction where they need it or leaving them alone when they need it? So having a partnership with them in coming to that is really, really important as well. It's all about formative assessment, really watching closely and engaging them in that as well. So I guess my challenge to us all as educators is that we get beyond the either-or and to think about the both-and and particularly realising that we need a repertoire of strategies that's all about how do we bring about success in learning for kids, 
but not losing sight of what Plato once said, that the task of the educator is not to put knowledge where knowledge does not exist, but rather to lead the mind's eye that it might see for itself. So as you can see from that video, not only do a lot of constructivists really value instruction, but they have a clear plan for where it sits within um, their, their classroom practice. Um, I would also point to the fact that there are considerable crossovers from the instructivist um, research base as well. So as we've already discussed, there's this idea of the expertise reversal effect, namely this idea that um, once uh, a learner has reached a level of domain knowledge uh, that um, direct instruction can actually increase the level of cognitive load for them by introducing extraneous information and actually can decrease performance. So um, obviously the key area of contention and debate is when one can, can consider that a learner has reached a level of domain ex um, expertise and when the expertise reversal effect uh, will kick in and it's a very very interesting topic and area of research. A second area of crossover from the research base there is also this notion of germane load i.e. that a certain level of cognitive load which has been well planned for and appropriately implemented um, if for example you've managed to reduce levels of extraneous load within the task can actually lead to the stronger development of the kind of applicable schema of interconnected knowledge for learners i.e. harder learning can be stronger learning um, and this has strong echoes um, with the notion of the zone of proximal development that we find outlined by Vygotsky and of course sitting very centrally within this notion of um, um, social constructivism um, that notion is that we should uh, set tasks that are neither overloading or um, oversimplifying the learning process. So the crossovers don't end there. Um, both models um, have a really strong uh, value associated with conceptual understanding and procedural fluency within learning and more importantly that those two things should be developed together through the use of practice and lots of practice within learning is something that is valued by both camps. Um, both uh, models recognize the importance of rigorous planning and the sequencing of activities um, and assessments which keep a close eye on both learning outputs but also the underlying thinking that sits behind those outputs. So in other words, both models value and have an understanding for the, of the place of both summative and formative assessment within the classroom. Linked to that, of course, is the, the, the probably the most important factor, which is that both models really value effective classroom relationships and the space that that develops for appropriate feedback to learners to develop metacognition and self-regulation. Um, so, so both models value that. So increasingly, it looks like the really fruitful question for modern professionals are the ones that are linked to extent and blending. Where and when is it appropriate to use authentic problems within the learning process? What level of challenge is appropriate? Um, and when is it right to increase the level of cognitive load or germane load within within learning. Um, when is it right to start removing the scaffolding from the learning process? So you can look at the evidence and you can look at the theoretical crossovers and say, actually, I still think that um, there's, there's a sufficient strength of evidence to go with a purist implementation. 
However, I feel that that research base is guiding us towards uh, focusing on these these questions of extent and blending, um, and so uh, that outlines the sort of the baseline uh, thinking that sits behind this module. So, um, when we engage actively and positively um, with the debate, there are a number of potential outcomes for us both as teachers, but also uh, as a broader educational community. So we could look at the evidence on either side of this debate and choose an outcome that is either or. We might say that one perspective has become so compelling that we can reject the alternative positions wholesale and we can focus our energy purely on refining the techniques advocated by the successful model. Alternatively, we could look at the data and uh, the evidence and the arguments and say, actually, there's compelling information on both sides. And we want to develop an approach which seeks to synthesize or integrate um, those models together. And perhaps even more intriguingly is the possibility of a both and response. We might say um, that in the process of participating in this debate, um, we synthesize new evidence and new perspectives which uh, are unveiled by the process of us uh, of us engaging in the conversation which actually allow us to build a new model which transcends the former and that is a possible outcome too so let's be clear that it's obvious that um, this is a community endeavor no one teacher is going to resolve the debate um, but actively participating in the discussion and facing the choices outlined that I've just outlined um, will help you play a part in developing and refining that relationship between theory and practice.